Welcome to the Broken Pie Chart Podcast, episode number 21. I'm your host, Derek Moore, and today we're going to be talking about a couple things. Uh, later in the episode, I'll sort of uh, talk a little bit about backtesting and what that is and some of the pros and cons. It's a question sometimes I get asked, but another question I got asked recently by somebody was around some of the terms and some of the things that they hear, whether it's on CNBC or Bloomberg or Fox Business Channel or just reading, you know, the Wall Street Journal, any of those outlets. And that's just, you know, when they hear people talking about individual stocks, a lot of times terms are thrown around, but they're never really explained. And so the question was, hey, if I was wanting to just kind of look at a, an individual stock, number one, where would I look for this information? But what's some of the fundamental things that they're talking about? And so for this episode, we'll go through some of that. And like I said later, touch on what is backtesting, uh, what is it good for, the pros and cons, things like that. So first off, the individual stock idea. Now, anyone listening to this knows that I'm a big advocate of getting long a diversified basket using ETFs, but then hedging those ETFs. So it's a hedged equity strategy where you're looking to get the majority of the upside, but limit the majority of the downside. But what's in those ETFs? What's in those indexes? For example, the S&P 500 is made up of roughly 500 stocks. I know that sounds a little counterintuitive, but yeah, there's actually more than 500 in there right now, primarily because Google has two different versions of its stock. And then, of course, if you look at the Dow Jones, that's 30 stocks. But look at an individual stock, right? So one of the things you always hear, you hear about earnings, you hear about the top line and the bottom line. And so anyone who wants to sort of look at an individual stock, you can go to MarketWatch and and put in the ticker symbol of a stock. You could probably put the name of a stock in, let's say if you want to look at Apple or Google or, or any stock, Netflix, and you could pull up the same sort of data. Now, there's four times that a company at least is scheduled to update you about what they're doing. And that's the earnings releases. And so not every company does it on the same date. Not every company has the same fiscal year. But once every three months or so, uh, once a quarter, they come out with their quarterly earnings. And in those earnings, it's the chance for analysts and people who follow companies to sort of update their their numbers on a trailing one-year period or just see what the company's been doing. And you often hear about revenue and you hear about income. And a lot of times people come on CNBC and they say, hey, XYZ, beat on the top line and beat on the bottom line or missed on the top line and and beat on the bottom line or whatever combination you have there. And when they talk about the top line, what they're talking about is revenues. When they're talking about the bottom line, it's the net income, what the company actually made. So when you look at revenue, revenue isn't necessarily profit because there are costs, but your revenue, one of the things that people look at is revenue growing sort of quarter over quarter or year over year uh, to measure any sort of growth that's happening. And revenue growth is certainly a, an important thing that's, that's in the company. Net income is how much they made. And so if you're following things along, you know, just because revenue is growing doesn't necessarily mean that their net income or their profits are going up. Maybe their cost of goods, sometimes referred to as, and that's another one, COGS, uh, they hear that term on uh, on Shark Tank, the show Shark Tank on ABC, 
where they have entrepreneurs on, COGS or COGS is the cost of goods sold. But revenue and net income are two really big things. Uh, People want to see revenue growing. They want to see net income growing. It's possible to have net income go up when revenue stays stagnant or goes down. And one of the things that companies could do, they become more efficient. They could lower costs. They could do a number of things. But top line is revenue. Bottom line is net income. And companies either have positive or negative net income. So some companies are operating a loss. Sometimes you see early on companies that are not generating profits yet. But the other thing that you often hear about companies is the whole idea of market cap. Now, recently, for a while, Apple had right around a trillion dollars in market cap. And what's market cap? It's just you take the number of shares outstanding times the price the stock is trading at. And so if you have a company that has a billion shares outstanding and they're trading at $100 a share, well, then their market cap is $100 billion. But market cap, uh, actually recently, I think it was Microsoft and maybe Amazon uh, and Apple, they've been sort of vying for the top spot. But market cap is really the, the size of the, the market capitalization, it's the size of the, the number of shares times the price in the company. Now, market cap is also related, by the way, if you watch, let's say, the S&P 500 or the NASDAQ 100 or the Russell 1000 or 2000, uh, the S&P 500, for example, that's a market-weighted index. And so the larger the market cap of a company that makes up part of the S&P 500, the larger percentage of the index that that company represents and so I believe Apple was, uh, was the largest, I believe, last time I looked. And what that means is they contribute more to a, uh, the index going up or down. Interestingly enough, the Dow Jones is not a market cap weighted index. And there's only 30 companies that are in that. But that one is a price weighted one. So if you have a company that has the highest price, even if it's not the largest market cap weighted company, that would have the greatest impact on the movement of the Dow Jones. In fact, recently, uh, of course, Boeing uh, had some news out, right? And and that company sold off quite a bit. I think the Dow was up 100 points, but it would have been up 400 points because Boeing contributed to 300 negative points on the Dow Jones uh, because of the price of the stock was, was so high. Uh, okay. So getting back to the market cap though, uh, market cap, when they talk about, hey, who has the highest market cap? Number of shares outstanding times the price of the stock. So thinking about individual stocks, you come to earnings. Now, earnings release four times a year. Sometimes companies will do what's called a pre-announcement if their guidance changes or if they need to report something bad or something good, uh, then they might sort of restate their projections and you get another look at potential future earnings. Apple did this back in the end of 2018. I think it was the end of 2018 when they actually came out and they announced that earnings were going to be, or sales were going to be a little softer, uh, having to do with China and and the new iPhone. And that restated some analyst opinions about future expectations. But one of the ways that companies measure earnings is earnings per share. And so earnings per share simply takes the amount of net earnings and it divides it by uh, the number of shares outstanding. And so 
let's say that uh, a company earned $10 million and they had 1 million shares outstanding. Companies have many, many more uh, millions or billions of shares outstanding. But in our example, 10 million in earnings, 1 million shares outstanding. You would say they earn $10 a share. And so earnings per share is one of the the measuring sticks that a lot of companies go through. And by the way, if you go to MarketWatch, you go to Bloomberg, CNBC, Wall Street Journal, any Yahoo Finance, any number of these places, you can find the EPS, you can find the earnings, all sorts of information that's available online now. So earnings per share is one of the metrics. The other metric that comes out of that is this idea of a P-E ratio. So a P-E ratio is a price-to-earnings ratio. Put it another way, if you want to get the P-E ratio of a company, you simply take the price divided by the earnings per share. So in our example, where we had $10 million in, in net income and a million shares outstanding, we earned $10 per share. So if the company's trading at $100 per share, the P-E ratio would be 10. Why? It's trading at 10 times its earnings per share, right? If you kind of follow that. So P-E ratio is one of those things, uh, fundamental analysts. So there's fundamental analysts, there's fundamental investors and traders, and they're looking at balance sheets, earnings, earnings growth, potential revenue growth. They're looking at all those things. Uh, Of course, a technical analysis analysis person is going to look at really momentum and price and time. Uh, But fundamentals, uh, earnings are one of the core things, and people want to see earnings growth in companies. Now, price-to-earnings ratios, historically, I think the mean P-E ratio, let's say the S&P 500, which would be counting all the companies in the S&P 500 and looking at their their aggregate earnings together, I think the median or or the mean P-E is somewhere around 14 to 15-ish. But Industries are different. Sometimes you've got industries that have a lot more growth and they trade at a higher PE uh, without getting into what's a good PE, what's a bad PE. I just want you to understand when you see that, what that's being represented by. Now, when you look at uh, one of the things that, that people sort of follow companies on, they're looking at these measures, but they're also looking a little more at the earnings. And they're looking a little bit more about how the company is capitalized or what their debt is and what's their free cash flow. And so if you go on to one of these sites and you can get their financials, uh, something that would be contained in an annual report as well from a company. But if you wanted to look at quarterly data or annual data, you could pull up their income statement, which by the way, has their income, the balance sheet, which has their assets and their liabilities and, and their cash flow statement which is where you'll find or be able to derive the free cash flow. And those three things have a lot of information on there. And so one of the measures that you might hear thrown around is what's the EBIT or what's the EBITDA? What the heck does that mean? Well, EBIT, E-B-I-T, is earnings before interest and taxes. And you throw the DA on the end of it, that's depreciation and amortization. EBITDA earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. In other words, before you start to reduce earnings for taxes, reduce earnings for items that you depreciate, and you know interest that you have to pay on, on debt, what are the earnings? And so 
by the way, amortization and depreciation, amortization, let's say depreciation is more something you use on a tangible asset. Let's say you own a coffee shop and you bought a tractor. Why a tractor? I have no idea. Maybe you're going to put it out front as a decoration. But let's say you buy a tractor and it costs you $100,000. Uh, on an accounting basis, they might depreciate that over the useful life of the asset. So although it uh, it's only, you know, it's $100,000, they might write off a certain amount each year. They depreciate the value of it. And so depreciation is more of a, a physical or a tangible asset without getting too too deep in the weeds on that. Amortized things might be, well, here's one, all these streaming companies, when they produce a, a show or they uh, spend money on content to produce a show, they might amortize, so more of a non-tangible asset, they might amortize the cost of that over a number of years. So depreciation and amortization are things that uh, are you know, charges that they take over a number of years. Um, when I get to free cash flow, though, it's it's sort of interesting. Um, well, actually, let's talk about it now. You know, free cash flow is one of those things, and I always give the example of somebody owned you know a pizza store, and they paid out their employees, they paid out all their their marketing expenses, they they bought equipment, they did all that stuff, or in a year. And imagine they just they never took money out of a cash register or behind the counter. And at the end of the year or the end of a quarter, let's say, at the end of the quarter, they go in and they pull the money out. That's the free cash flow. That's after all the, the things they spent money on or reinvested money back into the business or purchased new equipment. That's what's sort of left over. And so one of the interesting things, sometimes you can look at a company and they may have positive earnings, but negative free cash flow. And the reason why that might be is it goes back to the whole depreciating or amortizing something. You know, let's say you, you paid to produce a, a video for your company or a TV show about your company, whatever. It doesn't matter what it's about. And it cost a million dollars. Well, you might not have any free cash flow, but if you're amortizing the cost a little bit this year, a little bit next year, a little bit the year after, however it is you do it, on an after amortization, you might actually wind up with positive earnings, but still have negative free cash flow. But cash flow is really after all the stuff that a, that a business does, what's left over. So amortization, depreciation. The other thing that is sort of important for companies, and it might be important for investors, is the idea of dividends. So many companies, not all, but many companies might pay out a portion of their net income as a dividend. So imagine you had that same pizza shop and you made, you know, $100,000 in the year. I don't know if that's good or bad for a pizza shop, but we'll go with that because that's a nice round number. And imagine you had investors and you said, well, I'm going to take 50% of that money and reinvest it in a new supercharged pizza oven that I think is a good investment for the business and will help growth and we'll get some sort of growth rate from that. And we'll take the other 50% or 50,000 and I'll pay it out to my shareholders or investors as a dividend. And so dividends are a way of paying out a, a portion of the earnings. And when a business, well, they don't pay out in dividends or if they don't pay dividends out at all, the idea is that they're reinvesting that money back in the business. And normally that goes to help an analyst decide what type of growth rate is in the company. So 
Dividend yield is also something that you'll see on a page, maybe in Yahoo Finance. Let's say a company's trading at $100 and they pay out $1 a year in dividends. You would say the dividend yield, the dollar divided by the 100, would be 1%. So you could see how much what the yield is based upon the current price of a payout of a dividend. Now, speaking of payouts of dividend, I mentioned in the example kind of a 50-50 split in our pizza shop where they paid out half the money in dividends to the shareholders and the other half they reinvested into supercharged ovens. They reinvested into the business looking to spur growth. One of the things that you can see, you can look either at a retention ratio, uh, sometimes I think they call it you know, plowback ratio, what percentage of net income do they put back into the business and what percent do they actually pay out dividends to shareholders? And so a lot of growth companies don't pay out dividends. They're always reinvesting into, into the business. Some more mature companies that have been around for a while, they might pay a high, higher dividend. It, it all sort of depends. But one of the reasons why that matters is, and look, there's, there's this thing in, in markets where investors or analysts, they're trying to come up with what's the right value putting a value on a, a company or, or a stock. And I always caution people because people believe sometimes that if they value a company, that the price should be at that value. But the price of a stock is totally different from the value. And I'll explain. I mean, the price of a stock is really a function of supply and demand on that stock. More buyers than sellers, the stock's going to go up. More sellers than buyers, the stock's going to go down. So somebody might put a value, let's say a stock's trading at 50, and somebody says, hey, you know, this thing, the way I value it, and we'll assume that their analysis was correct, and they've done all the numbers, and they've made good predictions about the future, because putting a value on a company sort of elicits the the need for uh, picking a a future growth rate of earnings. But let's say they they put a value on it. Well, there's no guarantee it's going to trade that way. And so valuing a stock and a price or trading a stock is is two really separate things. And somebody who's a value investor or a fundamental value investor, they try and put a value on a company. And what they're they're hoping is if they buy it cheaper than their valuation, that at some point the, the company gets up there. And if they're doing things that, you know, looking to short a company or looking to make money on the downside, uh, if they have a value that's lower than the market, well, they want to sell it short or you know, buy options, do something with it uh, to make money on the downside. You're hoping it goes lower. But there's two really foundational ways and you know, people who put, try and do intrinsic value, intrinsic meaning what, what's the value of a stock, what should it be worth? They're using you know, two of the classical ones or something called the dividend discount model. So let's say you had a company that paid out dividends and what you're going to do is you're going to assume you've got to assume some sort of a, a rate of growth on, on the payout of dividends. So if they pay 1% this year, do they pay you know, 1.10% next year and 1.20% the year after that if they've raised their dividend year after year? So what you've got to do is come up with some estimation of what a the payouts of dividends will look like. And then you've got to discount those dividends, meaning you know, a payment in the future is not worth the same as it is right now, today. So you've got to discount it down to the present value. And then the earnings that are plowed back into the company, uh, you've got to come up with some sort of a growth rate. And I'm not going to go through the numbers and everything. You can Google dividend discount model. 
But that's one of the ways that people try and put a value on a company, the present value of future earnings or growth and the present value of future dividend payments and also estimating dividend growth. Now, interestingly enough, when you look at so what about those growth companies and companies that don't pay out a dividend? Well, then there's this other thing that's called the sort of the, the free cash flow evaluation. And that's just looking at at the end of the year, you know, what is the what is the free cash flow that the company produces? And then you've got to assume some sort of a growth rate on there going forward. And a lot of companies that don't pay dividends, maybe a growth company, maybe a new company, um, that might be more of an appropriate valuation. And uh, there's sort of combinations of both uh, that you can use. But I bring those up because that's one of the things when you hear people on CNBC and they're like, hey, I have a a valuation of this on, on this company. The important thing to understand, though, is both of those models require the individual doing the analysis and putting a value on there to make estimations about the future, which is really unknown. Uh, it's unknown what the economy is going to be like or anything like that. But you've got really smart people and analysts who follow companies who use these types of models to try and put a value on a company. Um, and so all of those things, all those things that you see on the income statement, the balance sheet, and the cash flow, all sort of uh, go into that. Last thing I'll talk about with before I get to some things on back testing is this idea of debt. So companies take out debt. They might issue bonds. You might own bonds. So when a company wants to borrow money, they might issue bonds and they say, we're going to issue these bonds maybe for a term uh, maturity of 10 years and we'll pay X amount of interest per year. That's a liability for the company. And so interest rates have been really low. And what that means is borrowing costs have been down. And it also obviously depends on the credit rating of the company and all those things. But if you want to try and estimate, uh, well, first of all, if you want to see what their current debt is, if you look at a balance sheet, you can see a couple of things. There's short-term debt. There's also uh, current long-term. Like, what does current long-term debt mean? Um, and then there's long-term debt. Uh, current long-term is really the current portion of long-term debt. It means debt that was long-term, but it's going to become due in the next year. And so you can see how much debt is out there. You can also see on the financials how much interest expense the company has paid. And so interestingly enough, and some companies are a little more uh, difficult to figure out. Uh, There's also the argument to be made, let's say if you're somebody like you know, a major drugstore chain that leases all of their buildings, uh, that lease is quasi-debt. Okay, but let's not complicate things. But if you wanted to, to take a look and see you know, about what interest rate they're paying, you could take the interest expense or the interest that they pay divided by the, you know, the, the current portion of long-term debt, the, the long-term debt, the short-term debt, and figure out about what the interest rate is. So- if interest rates were to rise, this is something that I think a lot of analysts are looking at and evaluating and looking at borrowing costs and, and things like that. So really, that's uh, it's kind of a lot of information, but, but these are some of the things that you hear about. And like I said, recently I got questions, you know, hey, what are these terms that I hear? And if I wanted to actually follow a company and, and understand a little bit more about what it is that people are looking at, 
I mean, these are some of the the foundational things. And there's many other things. There's many ratios. There's many ways to look at it. Okay. The other topic I wanted to cover a little bit today is the idea of backtesting. So what is backtesting? Backtesting is when, let's say, somebody creates a strategy and they say, look, we'll buy or sell every time this, this, and this happens, or we'll use these assets and we'll assume that we've held them in some proportion as part of a diversified portfolio for a number of years. And they're, what they're doing is they want to test backward and say, if we would have done this, so let's say starting in 1926, if we would have bought every time the S&P did this, or if we would have bought these stocks, uh, if they had a PE ratio below this and said, okay, let's just follow that model and theoretically, hypothetically, using, you know, not traded, but just back-tested, meaning hypothetical, if you would have bought here and sold here, what the results would have been. And so sometimes I've seen, I've seen this recently where, you know, people will say, hey, if you want, let's say, a portfolio that could do well in any market condition, you've, you can buy a certain amount in bonds, you can buy a certain amount in commodities, uh, you could buy, you know, certain amount in stocks, and then they do a back test. So the question somebody posed to me, are they good or bad? Or are they relevant? And here's the thing. If, if anyone is working on a strategy, I mean, one of the first things they might do is sort of back test it to see is, is there any relevance to this? And then maybe what they might do is, is put their own money in or put, put a little bit of money in and, and test it in real life. Um, back test, you know, there's a difference between a back test and actually trading things too. Sometimes, uh, for example, there was a, um, a strategy which said recommended to short stocks, meaning you sell it first, you hope to buy it back later at a cheaper price in order to make money. But stocks have to be able to be borrowed to short. And so some of these stocks, uh, I forget what, what the service was, they were recommending these short sales. And in reality, you couldn't trade them, you couldn't short them because they weren't able to be uh, borrowed for short sale. So even though this thing said, the service said, hey, you know, you would have made this much money, this much money. In reality, you couldn't get the trades off. So past performance is past. And, and here's the other thing too. If I was going to, let's say, test a strategy and assume based upon past results, and I, I did an episode on this when I talked about the whole efficient frontier and using you know many years of, of results to try and come up with the the right mix of stocks and bonds, for example. You know, one of the challenges right now is if you're including, let's say, bonds in a portfolio, well, bonds were yielding a lot more from, you know, the late 70s coupon percentage rates, right? The, the amount of interest that you receive was much higher. But bonds also for 30, 35 years plus from the peak in 1981 till really, you know, 2016, 2017, um, rates have started to come up a little bit recently, although they're still very low uh, compared to historicals. But let's say you looked at that. Well, remember, interest rates go down, bond prices go up. So for the 30 or 35 years, you have this unprecedented bull market in bonds. And so if you include bonds and you include all those gains uh, you know, during very high coupon periods, is it really the best metric going forward? And 
And that's one of the challenges with sort of using and backtesting in periods that uh, maybe had different characteristics. For example, in the late 1970s, when inflation was rising, you had uh, commodities, and I believe gold did really well uh, back then. Although gold, if you backtest it and hold it many, many periods or through different periods, sometimes the real return isn't as high as obviously it was when you had that hyperinflation. I would I shouldn't say hyperinflation. I would say pretty good inflation. Hyperinflation is more something like Zimbabwe or Germany uh, many years ago. So backtest results can be a way to sort of test things. But I would just caution people when they read something or hear something uh, talked about, hey, you know, use these assets because even when interest rates went down, they still did pretty good. Or even when inflation was good, it's a, it's a protectant against inflation because it does really well. Uh, the reality is we are in a different interest rate environment than we are now. And especially with regards to bonds, you know, bonds are already levered a little bit more to changes in interest rates because the, there's something called the modified duration. The lower the coupon rate, and meaning the amount they pay out in interest every year, and of course, the longer the duration, the more sensitive they are. But if you take a 10-year bond with a 10% coupon, you take a 10-year bond with a 2.6% coupon, the one with the 2.6% coupon is going to be much more sensitive, meaning more risk if interest rates go up. They would feel that more than would the 10%. And obviously, if you're getting 10%, you know, if, you're, if your bond goes down 10% and you got 10% for the year, well, then you're even. But if the bond goes down 10% and you only get 2.5%, well, then you're still down. So uh, I would just say with backtesting, there's, there's valid reason to do it, but be careful when you're looking at backtested things because backtesting still is using past performance. It may not be indicative of future results. It also may not correctly reflect the current environment. And then finally, what I would say is there is a real difference between actually trading things and the prices that you're able to trade things at and what a theoretical backtest said. And I only point to my example of the short sale strategy that said that it would have done, done really well, but in reality, when somebody tries to trade it, maybe the shares are available to trade, maybe they're not. So maybe we'll do a little bit more in backtesting, but I had that question as well. So, all right, folks, that wraps it up for this episode. Hopefully, we'll be back next week with another episode. One of the things I wanted to ask people to do, too, is, uh, you know, if you like this, uh, what you're hearing, if it's beneficial to you, everyone always says, hey, rate and, and you know, give me five stars and write a review. Don't, you can do that if you want. But here's the ask of you. If you find this valuable and the other episodes valuable, number one, go back, listen to the other episodes. But also, you know, these uh, are going to be, you know, they're on RazorWealth.com. Obviously, they're in uh, podcast platforms. But try and, uh, and share this with somebody who you think might be interested in, in what we're doing here. So that would be helpful. That's the one ask. If you want to rate it and review it, that's great too. Uh, but share the content. And also reach out to me. You can go to RazorWealth.com, R-A-Z-O-R-W-E-A-L-T-H.com. And I'd love to hear suggestions for some future episodes things that we should cover. All right, folks, have a good week and we'll talk to you soon.